Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome back to The Midpoint. I'm back today with another special expert episode for you. I really hope you're getting a lot out of these episodes. And this week's guest is someone you might have heard on the podcast before. Psychotherapist, best-selling author and podcaster Julia Samuel joined Rob Rinder and I last month to talk about family and inherited trauma. But I really felt like she had so much more advice to offer on a whole range of topics. So I had to ask her back for her own special episode. She's channeled over 30 years of clinical experience into three books, Grief Works, This Too Shall Pass, and Every Family Has a Story. All of them brilliant. Julia has used real-life case studies as foundations for all of these books, so they are full of practical advice. And today we're going to be focusing on family relationships and grief and putting some of your questions to her. Hello, Julia. It's great to have you back on The Midpoint. How are you? Very well. Lovely to be back, Gabby. I really want to focus on family relationships and grief today. But before we do, can we just have a little word from you on your history and kind of how you got into this area and why I know grief and grief counselling is particularly an area you have been fascinated and worked deeply in? Yeah, that is. I think all therapists are influenced and do this job from their own experiences. And mine was I was brought up in a family where both of my parents were very significantly bereaved um, way before I was born. So my mum was an orphan with her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died and all died tragically and unexpectedly by the time she was 25. And my dad, his father and his brother, they had also died unexpectedly. So I was brought up in a, a house that, you know, we had lots of great things, but there was this unvoiced grief that um, these black and white photographs of all these very significant, all my, my grandparents and my aunts and uncles who were never talked about because my parents were the generation that what you don't talk about isn't going to hurt you. And me as a child trying to work out what was going on. And I think that made me very curious to know what was going on below the waterline, more interested than what people were saying, because we actually never talked about what really mattered. We only talked about <laughs> what didn't matter. <laughs> and I think being a twin as well, I was always seeking connection. So I think those two things combined unconsciously. So when I went into train as a therapist when I was just 30, I didn't realise that was the influence, but didn't take long for me to work that out. <laughs> I'm sure the people working with you got, got to the bottom of that quite quickly. Um, yeah. and, and grief in particular does come up a lot in uh, the listeners' questions in all kinds of areas. And they've been asking for, for somebody to come on and talk about that because I think a lot of people in this period of life in the midpoint are experiencing loss, whether it's parents, and that might be the first time they've experienced real deep, you know, serious loss close to them. Or it might be friends and, you know, you kind of from the 50s onwards, it's, you know, things are starting to fail and higher rates of disease and illness. So it might be friends, it might be partners. And we are just still really kind of clueless as a society, aren't we, about how to how to deal with our grief. We're never taught about grief. It's, it's kind of one of those emotions that is still 
a bit taboo. It really is taboo. And I think it scares us. And, you know, I think what's interesting about the midlife is not only are our parents maybe given a diagnosis and grief starts at the point of diagnosis. So the minute you know someone is life threatened, you kind of feel that Jaws music of fear that someone I love is going to die. But also midlife, we sort of know that there's less ahead than behind. So we feel our mortality more. And in some ways, one of the great fears around grief and death is, if I look at it, is there a kind of magical thinking, I'm going to make it happen? So if I, you know, if I just crack on and I pretend that it's everything's okay, then maybe it's not going to catch me. And actually, what we know from the research and everyone listening knows from their own experience is that the things that we do to avoid the pain of grief, of loss, and it is painful because pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces us to adjust to this new reality that our parent or our friend or our sibling has died or is dying, is the thing that does us harm over time. That That grief is naturally adaptable. It's meant to kind of adjust our thinking and our reality. The task is to face this new reality that this person is no longer physically present. And when we block that, we kind of block our capacity to feel alive. So we feel less. Our window of emotion is much less because the things that we do to block it block our capacity to feel joy as well. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it really does make sense. And and it's a brilliant way and very eloquent way of, of expressing it, I think, because those blockages can be anything, can't they, from destructive behaviour in relationships to, you know, using substances to kind of block off that emotion and, and just those patterns of behaviour that will lead to unsuccessful relationships going forwards to to avoid joy almost because that seems contrary to those feelings that you're having whether it's subliminal or not exactly and and it can be busyness so it can feel like you're being productive when you know i think busyness and work is a is as much an anesthetic as as alcohol or drugs or any of the other things but i also i think the thing that people don't fully recognize is that is the sort of tasks is to give yourself space to feel the pain and grieve and emote and be sad and oscillate to being restorative, to being okay, to getting on, to having life in your life, to connecting to others, to giving yourself permission to feel joy. Because I think one of the most complicated aspects of grief is guilt. That am I allowed to be happy? Am I allowed to feel joy? And if we can recognise that, you know, guilt is a is a an emotion that we put on ourselves that doesn't normally come from anybody else, that we can give ourselves permission, that we can manage to feel the pain if we give ourselves opportunities to also connect to others. And the single biggest predictor of outcomes for people who are grieving is the love and connection of others. When our love for someone who has died is so painful, it is only the love of others that helps us survive. Okay, let's crack on with some of our brilliant listeners' questions. And the first one I want to put to you is, well, it's coming from a few different people. Um, uh, Doba Swift, El Farah and Pauline Hockey One all want to know how best to support a partner or friend who's dealing with grief. I mean, I think it shows that you care, that you want to know. And so that's probably the most important step, that you really want to support them and you're not trying to kind of push them out of it. 
I think one of the things to know is that grief tends to take longer than anyone wants. So I think societally we give somebody three months or six months or a year and the level of the loss is equal to the level of the emotional investment and the significance of the relationship. So if this was a death of someone who was really important, that's going to be a kind of long road. So be patient is probably one of the first things. Um, and I think ask your partner, what do they need? What do they want? Um, what are they having difficulty with? So probably the biggest thing you can do is listen. You can't fix this. You can't bring the person back. You can't take the pain away. But by offering your love, your connection, your willingness to listen and hear them, and they may well repeat themselves over and over and over, but that will be healing. And I think one of the ways practically that we can do that, I suggest that walking and talking like getting outside winter or summer and walking side by side and maybe with your kids as well because it's good to model for them that we can be sad that we grieve that you know this is how we manage it and maybe start you know the person that's supporting start with I'm feeling really sad I miss so-and-so too even if it isn't you know it's your mother-in-law say um, and say what you're feeling and you allow the space but by moving together in rhythm you're not eyeballing each other you can have space between and then your partner can talk about how they're feeling and they can kind of really move inwards and begin to describe what the feeling is in their bodies or what the words are that expresses it and then through that by the end of the walk everybody I think does feel lighter and then go and have a pizza or go and kind of go home and have a nice lunch so do you do something, something that's a, a bit more joyous afterwards. yeah that you have you do the thing you have something that's comforting it's really interesting i'm thinking about various times when that's happened with me especially recently we've lost a few kind of friends and walking with their partners or um you know that seemed like an instinctive thing to do but also a couple of years ago my my son had his you know heartbroken first girlfriend 15 years oh. and the conversation i remember the most was as I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> was us walking together. The conversation that we had, I still remember vividly. And he clearly does because he said to me recently, two years ago, and he said to me recently, uh, something that, that I'd said to him about having his heart broken then. Sorry about that. And then um, I think it's because he's leaving home. And, and I remember what the day looked like. I remember kind of what we were wearing even because he had hardly left the house for two days. And, and he did seem to kind of pick up after that. And it is, I, I, there's something, isn't there, just about the air and about not having to look eyeball to eyeball, I think, that even though you might do at some point, you might hug at some point, you you can express yourself in, in that really free way. What's so interesting is the power of your memory of it. It's like a live video that these significant events kind of live in us and inform and connect to us decades or years after them and so I, I mean what I love about you being so open is it shows people about grief that there's many different kinds of grief like a living loss of breaking up with a girlfriend but also we don't get over stuff we learn to live with it we learn to accommodate it and build our life around it but it's those moments of love and connection where you 
really feel seen, where you really feel you've helped someone that build the bonds of love in families. So part of what is moving you is that you actually did a really good parenting job at that point. And you can both feel it and hold it. And a lot of the time we give ourselves shit, don't we? Like, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. (laughs) And so there's that movement of like, God, I did get that right. And that really mattered. And of course, because it was loss, a new loss will always connect to a previous loss. So because he's leaving home, your system goes back to loss and it will go back to his loss and your memory of that, but also your losses because we're not machines. So when we have loss in our being, it ignites all our losses and it doesn't mean that we haven't grieved them. It's just we go to the same place. This is so weird, but I think also... Yeah, you probably know that um, I lost my brother. I do. And so... <laughs> so I think probably I'm also in some way processing my mum losing her son, even though mine's going to come back at the weekend. <laughs> so, yeah, you're very powerful, Julia. <laughs> Your words are. Yeah, so I think there's probably a bit of that has probably just come over me suddenly, that, you know, it's that it's that deep loss that is even though I have dealt with it in so many positive ways and the trauma of loss, as you say, it doesn't ever, ever completely go away, does it? No. And we don't want it to. Because as painful as it is, and I mean, I hate bloody crying in public. I've done it a few times and I absolutely bloody hate it. On my own podcast. Feel, <laughs> I know, I did it on mine too and I absolutely <laughs> loathed it. <laughs> but also it is where we feel close. So you feel close to your brother, you feel close to your mum, you feel close to your son mm. because it's those moments that kind of kindle the bonds in us. You know, when we're kind of mm. all in charge and okay, we're mm. slightly armoured. Like mm. in this moment, you're, you've opened your heart up, haven't you? Totally disarmed. <laughs> and disarmed. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I'm going to try and ask a question that might um, not elicit more uh, tears. Tam H73 says, the sense of loss and heartbreak after a divorce feels like a death. How does one get past the grief of all that's been lost? And somebody else called Cherry Rumsey got in touch to ask a similar question, moving on from a friendship when the person is still alive. And this is the living loss you talk about. Mm. I think the the significance, I mean, I think they are two different relationships, uh, you know, the importance of a friendship and the divorce. So if I focus on the divorce is, the divorce I think is underestimated by people close to you. And I think societally of how, how big a loss it is. And that it's a kind of, it can feel like a real shattering of the dream that you wanted and a dream that, you know, Disney has built for sold us in books <laughs> and sold us. So I think, first of all, it's to legitimise and acknowledge how big a loss it is and that you will really feel it viscerally like grief, that it is extremely painful because we grieve the future we had every right to expect. And also, I think with a divorce, it is so complicated, you know, what's yours, what's theirs, what should we do together, all the what ifs, like why didn't I or why didn't he? 
and the confidence that it can really shatter or damage about will I dare love again? Can I trust again? Am I going to be alone forever? And then all the ways that you go out in the world, like your child's sports day or going to a friend's party where you're walking in alone, where you used to go in as a couple. And I think one of the things for women in particular is that I think you're treated with less respect as a single woman in midlife divorce mm. than you are as a couple. Mm. And I think like when you go and stay with people, you're given the kind of child's bedroom with the, with the Batman wallpaper rather than the double that you're given as a couple. You don't deserve and the ensuite. You don't, and the, and you're helping peel the potatoes rather than sitting. So I think there's Having a, a whole, glass of champagne. Yeah. Exactly. I think there's a whole unconscious societal degrading that divorced women in particular have, and I don't think it's true of divorced men. I think divorced men are seen as catches, and they're out in the world. And also, the thing. I mean, I could bang on about this forever, but you know, when men are widowed. One of the things that people talk about is that men replace and women mourn. And I think in divorce, what happens very commonly, men find a new partner very quickly or date very quickly. And women have less people available to them because they have more age difficulties. And they take it is much harder to find a new partner. So this it brings up a whole lot of fear. So it is a big grief. And my suggestion is that you really get support that you do the kind of pillars of health you know you take exercise you get lots of connection you eat well and you sleep well um, you make sure that you have fun like put fun in your life whether that's dancing in the kitchen going for a picnic in the park in the summer or going to a movie doing things that give you that are simple not hard to, to arrange that give you some joy in your life give you kind of back joy but give yourself opportunities to grieve, write it down, talk to friends, maybe see a therapist, because it's a painful process and it takes longer than you want. Even even if you feel like it's a joint decision, even if you feel like it's something that you were agreeable on, it's it's still a loss, isn't it? And the friendship, I wrote an article on this the other day, friendship is... It can be so confusing losing the relationship of a friend because you cannot know they may have ghosted you or stopped speaking to you. And so that is a real loss. And I think to some extent, you need the support of other friends to help to talk it through and to kind of build your confidence in yourself as a friend as well as let yourself feel sad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
let's talk about children. Mrs. K. Allwood wants to know how to talk to young children about their grandparents dying. So I think one of the kind of natural responses with children and death is that we want to protect them. We don't want them to suffer. We don't want them to be scared. We don't want them to worry. And what all the research shows, as well as all the young people I've spoken to, is that in a in reality, children need the same truth as all of the adults around them, but they need it in age-appropriate language. So if your child asks you, or if you're going to be talking about this kind of thing, you need to say, use the word dead and dying, like grandpa mm. has died. That means his body doesn't work anymore. His heart isn't beating. He is dead. Don't use gone to heaven gone to a better place, passed away, lost, because all of those words, children lose things every day. And children live in kind of magical thinking. So they'll think, oh, well, I can go to heaven. It's the room next door. It's the, mm. it's the hamburger joint down the street. I can find my granddad there. So my kind of basic question I ask all families when someone is dying or has died is, what are your worries? And children are really honest. Mm. You know, it could be, I'm worried, mum, you're not going to take me to school because you're still crying about grandpa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> or it could be, mum, are you going to die? Because they recognise that we're mortal and that your mum, the answer would be, I am going to die. I have, It's very unlikely I'm going to die until I'm as old as, as my grandparents. And that that is the truth. You can't promise you're not going to die. This is an interesting one and actually opens up, I think, um, what I think is the statistic. I remember when my brother died was almost like three quarters of, of married couples, if they lose a child, end up separating or divorcing. There's a really high percentage of couples who, having lost a child, don't stay together because the question is how to support family and other people around you when you're also grieving. So if you're in a situation, for example, like the loss of a child within a family unit, Everybody is feeling that loss intensely in the nuclear family, how you can have your own grief journey and support others is what often leads to families just not being ever the same again in terms of the relationships. And that question came from Anne A. Smith. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know if the statistic is that high. And actually, I think I've had quite a lot of People come into my room saying that I've been couples where a child has died. I've been told we're going to separate. I don't think it's particularly helpful in a way. No. So do you think that's, is that, is that some kind of urban myth that's been banded around then? I think the, so. I don't think yeah. it's that high. I think one of the most important things to recognise is in a family system to allow everybody in the family to grieve in their own particular unique way and to name that within the family. So that it, you know, the teenage son with his brother dying may want to just play a lot of football, be with his mates, kind of be a teenager. Um, the mum may most likely is going to be crying all of the time and the dad may be quiet and not be so obviously distressed. And to recognise that all of those ways of grieving are completely normal and to allow each of them to express their grief for themselves. But what helps is finding ways of coming together to express what they feel. And that might be something like if you have a box 
in the sitting room or in the hall where you have a notepad and pen and people would write about the son that died and put a little and put the message in the box and then mm. every month or few or few months or whatever you decide you sit round together and you read the messages so you use that as a touchstone to remember the son that's died and find ways of talking about it because it's it's hard often people if you ask somebody how they feel they shut down but if you have a kind of mechanism that allows you to talk about the person that is what you want because you need to both face the reality of the loss and remember that the love for that person never dies and having touchstones to the memory of that child and developing rituals within the family that represent and connect to him are really important. So I worked with a family this week whose son died and it's his birthday this weekend. And they're they're doing two things. They're, they're going to a music event, which is a happy thing as the whole family. Then they're going home and they've got a cake and they're gonna have tea and celebrate his birthday. And he would have been, you know, a particular age. And so doing both those things as a family kind of is very collective and collaborative and everyone can feel their own things. I think what often splits families when there's a right way or a wrong way of grieving, but everyone is suffering and they don't know how to communicate with each other. They don't know how to connect with each other. And so they kind of split off. Splinter. Mm. Splinter. Wayne John 52 says, both my parents and nephew passed in 2020. I'm still finding it difficult to move on. Any advice? So three years down the line, obviously not feeling that it's working, you know, whatever he's doing is not working to help alleviate the grief yeah. that he has. I mean, first of all, multiple losses has a kind of compounding effect. And so he is more likely to have complex grief, to have complicated grief, because it's almost like I don't know which room of grief to go into, my dad, my mum, you know, my nephew. And so one of the ways I think that he needs to kind of think about is giving himself boundary time to think about each of them individually. So if you like, you go into a room and you take out the aspect that's to do with his mum and maybe journal about his mum, remember his mum, connect to his mum, maybe look at photographs, maybe make an album in relation to his mum and allow himself to feel that because otherwise it's overwhelming for your brain to have all of those losses at once Mm. and to do that, plan to do that, do that specifically. The other thing I would look at is getting proper psychological support because I think that much loss you probably can't manage on your own and that you it would be helpful for you to to get support from a therapist to to do that because it's it's sort of your mind and your body are interconnected and it feels like he's got kind of locked in his mind and his body and that stuckness it's hard to kind of unlock on your own so using a therapist would be very some professional helpful. help yeah This is an interesting uh, question from Colette5456 about dealing with a missing person and how you deal with regret and guilt. I guess if somebody is long term missing or a long time missing, you're grieving because they've gone out of your lives. And yet there's still that slight 
kind of chink of light and hope that maybe one day they'll come back. And so, I mean, that's a an awful kind of proposition, isn't it? Something terrible that you have to have to deal with there. I really do think that's uh, unimaginably awful because, you know, what you imagine, what you make up is worse than the reality, however awful it is. And with someone missing, you can kind of go down every kind of possible awful story. So I, I think maybe the first thing is to keep your skyline short, like each day, try not to project into this unknown future, but just deal with today. And maybe you, sometimes if you're overwhelmed with feelings of fear or anxiety, just to deal with the next hour. The next hour, what I'm going to do is this. So, so keep your sense of attention and energy on manageable bite-sized chunks of time, because I think it's this limitless, I'm never going to know, that can, can overwhelm you. So having a story, a beginning, a middle and the end, that you can find a way of living with, however horrendous it is, is preferable to, to not knowing. Every piece of the jigsaw that's missing is that awful kind of hole that you can go down and drive you mad. And when I work with clients in that situation, like I would with the, the person missing, in the end, I will get them to to kind of do a, a, a visualization where they actually put all those imaginings in a container mm. and lock it and say, that is the end. I'm not going to go there anymore. I don't know this. I'm never going to know this. Ruminating is only driving me mad. Now I have to kind of grieve the not knowing and let myself feel the loss of the not knowing, but stop myself ruminating and then invest in, in feeling sad and living my life, but blocking that bit out. You've been so brilliant in answering those questions. And, it, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, that how many questions came through and, and on totally different areas of grief. You think it's kind of, you know, one issue and actually it's just like a tree with multiple branches that everybody's grieving situation is, is so different and how you deal with it. But, you know, I think you address some really key points there. Final Can I thing, add which... one more tool yes. for people yes. who are ruminating? If you keep having images, it could be trauma images, it could be the not knowing images, Put the image on a television screen, see the image, take a breath, change the channel and put a happy image. You're on a beach, you're hugging someone. So doing this with your eyes closed as a mental exercise. Eyes closed, I mean, a so mental you're imagining exercise. a TV screen and there's a, the, the, the image put the that's causing you distress. Put the difficult image on. Yeah. Take a breath, change the channel, put a positive, happy image on the screen, take a breath and then move your attention to doing something. And every time you have the difficult image, use that model. And over time, because we're habit forming beings, when we have the image, we will automatically go to the happy place. I guess you can apply that as well to people who just, who worry a lot about things that are, you know, catastrophize things and start imagining things happening, even if it's nothing to do with a recent grief or recent death, they, they can do Definitely. that. It's, yeah. What I was wanting to ask you just to kind of sum up everything is why it's so important to deal with grief and what can happen to people, you know, who who don't get these questions answered, who don't explore their feelings. You know, we talked at the beginning about behaviours that you can, you know, adopt to try and block off these these emotions. And I guess you must see people all the time who've spent years doing that and have then finally 
You know, there's no time limit to this, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You know, if somebody's five years, 10 years down the line, it, there's still hope and time that you can deal with your grief. It is never too late to grieve. And, you know, what the research shows that 15% of all psychological disorders come from unresolved grief. So the kind of mindset of if I don't feel it, if I don't feel the pain now, I'm going to be okay, is the opposite of the truth. The paradox is if I allow myself to grieve and feel the pain, paradoxically, that is how I heal and how actually I may even have growth and I'll thrive because we are wired to change. We are wired to accommodate and live with enormous losses and difficulties. Mm. But in order to do that, we have to find ways of supporting ourselves to metabolize it and give ourselves opportunities to feel it. And then we can really live and be happy and love again, despite these enormous difficulties that all of us at some time in our life will face. Julia, thank you so, so much. I mentioned all of your books, Grief Works, Every Family Has a Story, and this too shall pass in the introduction, but it's worth a mention again uh, with real life case studies in them. I hope maybe one time we can have you back on again because you are more than just a grief expert and you know how you help families is, is amazing. So yeah, thanks for making me after 78 episodes cry on my own podcast. Um. <laughs> I didn't make you, by the way. I'm enormously grateful for your time. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Kevin. Well, that was an enormously emotional and it's quite surprising, actually, what your emotions can do in those situations when you start talking. I certainly didn't expect to have that experience myself, but I am very grateful to Julia because she was absolutely brilliant, so knowledgeable in this space. You can tell it's been really the dominant part of her work as a psychotherapist. And you can head to juliasamuel.co.uk to find out more about her published works and also her podcast. And if you found this episode useful, you can leave a review wherever you listen to us, post on the Midpointers Facebook page or DM me at Gabby Logan. Feel free to suggest more topics as well that you'd like us to cover. So until next time, a big thank you to Julia, to Spiritland Productions and to you for listening. I'll see you next Wednesday. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.